0: To the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Um, Yes, my name is Matt Harris. I get the privilege of serving along with uh, Matt Waldrop and Stephen as elders here at City on Hill, Forest Hills. Um, and it is a blessing. And I'm privileged to be able to share some thoughts on uh, on Ephesians today with you. Um, before I get into that, though, we have a little, uh, little family business here. Um, and I know Matt Bradford's going to feel really awkward. He doesn't like being... In the limelight too much, but I need to bring you up to some um, uh, serious issues with his wife, Tina. She is in the hospital, um, as is their youngest daughter, Ruthie, also in the hospital. So on Friday this past week, uh, Tina was in the hospital with Ruthie, who's been there most of the week with some respiratory issues. And while she was there, Tina fainted in the hospital room. She was attended to immediately, and they determined she had a pulmonary aneurysm in her lung that was pressing against her heart. She was, I believe I get the details right, but I think she was wheeled across the street to Brigham Women's Hospital and went into emergency surgery. And about 10 o'clock, a little after 10 o'clock, we got word that the surgery went very well. Um, she is, she's doing well now. She is in intensive care and will be for a few days. And so, you know, we're concerned um, our heart breaks. It's, it's, it's so hard when this happens to a beloved family member. I don't think our heart breaks as much, though, as God's heart. God's more concerned about Tina than we are. And we can trust that he is just, just caring for her and healing her and equipping those around her. Um, but we need to be in prayer for Matt and for all of the family, Elijah, Lucas, Esther, and little Ruthie, who is still in the hospital right now. Um, You should be aware that uh, the... The elders and a number of people who are our deacon candidates here at Forest Hills have gotten together over the weekend and we're establishing a care plan for the Bradfords. The first and foremost, there's a meal train um, and that information about how to sign up to bring meals to their house is in place and uh, talk to anyone here, myself, my wife, Sue, uh, Jesse, Rick Kennedy, um, uh, Matt, the Waldrips, Heather, Talk to us about how to get on the meal train. Also, if you are a covenant member of Forest Hills, this might sound harsh, but we're going to expect 100% involvement, okay? We're a small church, and we need to care for this family who is part of us. So we really need to step up. It's going to be a number of weeks that that Tina's going to be recovering, um, and so we, we don't want them to be burdened with with this or other other. Opportunities to serve them that will be uh, that will be uh, raising to your attention. Um, so be mindful and prayerful of that. Um, also, uh, Rick and Jesse Kennedy, who I think many of you know, um, we've asked them and they are eagerly accepted the role. They are going to be the primary care coordinators with the Bradford family. And while we want everyone to feel and 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 must go forward and, and help serve the Bradfords, we want all of that care to be coordinated through Rick and Jesse. So anytime anyone is being involved in meal trains or visits or or anything else, um, make sure that Rick and Jesse know. Um, so we really appreciate your your expected support on that. All right. Um, so this morning, I'm going to be uh, sharing some thoughts on Ephesians 2 that Matt just read for you. Um, I won't reread it again, even though it's staring me right in the face in my notes here. But uh, let me just start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, first and foremost, we, uh, we want to glorify you here today, Lord. We, we, we come to you to, to worship you on this, on this morning, knowing that the cost that you paid to redeem us was so dear, a, a cost that we can't begin to imagine, of sending your Son to the cross and to earth and to the cross on our behalf, Lord. We are so grateful that you thought so highly of us, even as in our sinful nature, that you would sacrifice like that. Father, we also want to lift up the Bradfords at this time for healing for care for comfort and for peace knowing that all their needs will be met knowing that you are you in heaven lord are watching over and so concerned and caring about what's going on in Tina and Ruthie's bodies lord we just uh, know that we can trust you we know that you are all powerful and and all healing lord so we we just go forward with that lord we ask that father as i as i speak that uh, my words will be Few and your words will be many, Lord, as we, as we seek to, to step into the Apostle Paul's writing in Ephesians. Um, Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. So, as you know, we're in the study of Ephesians. We're working our way all the way through it. And last week, Stephen told us about the Gentiles and how they were separated from Christ and how they were aliens which is a word we hear a lot about. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And he went on to teach us how the Gentiles were strangers to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in this world. But who are the Gentiles? Well, it's actually really easy. By definition, the Gentiles were anyone who is not a Jew. Um, Now, I'm going to guess that's probably the vast majority, if not entirety, of everyone who's sitting in here. But listen, if you are Jewish, we are so glad you're here. You're welcome here. Um, So we are Gentiles. Um, The Romans were Gentiles. All of the tribes that are not part of the family of, uh, of Israel were Gentiles. Stephen also told us about a dividing wall, a giant imposing immovable barrier. And this was a wall that divided the hostility and enmity and sin that we hold onto so desperately from the love and the grace and the forgiveness that God offers so extravagantly. And he told us how Jesus had broken down that wall in, in Ephesians two fourteen that he preached on last week, it says, "For he himself is our peace, who is, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility." Being where it's different, you know, having the opportunity, I was. Let me say that again. Have you ever been somewhere where it's different? I'm talking about traveling, possibly to foreign lands. I've had the tra- opportunity to travel to some foreign lands, and I've been fortunate enough to have been able to travel a little bit. And it's, it can be a real culture shift when you do this. You can quickly find yourself in places where everyone looks different and sounds different from you. And I'm a little bit embarrassed to say this, but if I'm a, in a foreign land and I run into someone who I detect as American or speaks English, I kind of gush and I run over to them and introduce myself. Has anyone done that? Um, And, you know, I start speaking with them and, hey, where are you from? And and what brings you here? And how about those patriots? Because, you know, everyone in foreign lands loves the patriots, right? Um, The next thing you know, we might be sharing a cab or having dinner or doing touristy things together. And speaking of eating, restaurants in foreign cities can be a real challenge for me. I mean, I'm adventurous to a degree, with the food I like to eat. But sometimes I just don't have a clue with what's on the menu or what's on my plate or what's on those pictures that they give to the tourists. So you can kind of point and say, I'll have that. It kind of stresses me out. So I have this story about when Sue and I were in Paris with our kids. They were in high school, and we took them over to Paris. And we had had an exhausting day, and we landed back at our hotel room, and we hadn't had anything to eat. So I volunteered to go out and get pizza because I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to deal with some food I don't understand or a menu I can't read. So I found a pizza shop, and I looked around, and I picked, a, I picked this pizza that looked like it had, like, chicken on it. I'm like, that's going to be great. We're going to enjoy this. Well, it wasn't chicken pizza. It was tuna pizza. Uh, don't recommend it. What do you think, Sue? Yeah. Um, so it, it seems like both in ancient times and in modern times, we all kind of gravitate to things that are familiar and to people we think we have things in common with. We choose to sit at the lunch table with those we already know and we buy houses in neighborhoods where people look like us. And it takes courage and intentionality to step into a different culture and seek to establish real relationships. And then if you expand this out to include neighborhoods, cities, parts of the country, other countries, even regions of the globe, I mean, the divisions and differences between us can get really huge. I think sometimes countries and nations on the whole want to keep to themselves and be with their own kind. And this kind of sets up clear divisions between people groups. Divisions and hostility seem to be how we roll, unfortunately. It's the human nature. And there's something inside us that wants to avoid being with people who are different, but draws us close to people who are similar. Now, I'm not saying everyone is this way. I just think on mass, the numbers kind of Point that out. But there are exceptions. Actually, you may agree that the closer you settled into an urban environment, the more likely you will be with neighbors who do not look like you. I may be preaching to the choir here. You are all city dwellers, and you have chosen to live elbow to elbow with a diverse collection of image bearers. And Apostle Paul really endorsed this, he endorsed city living. I think Paul's preparation and encouragement to us to be city dwellers was prophetic to John's book of Revelation. In Revelation 7, 9, it says, From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. But we'd have to be naive to think that boundaries don't exist. Boundaries of culture, ethnicity, language, race become obvious Let's talk about the nation of Israel and how this affected them. There was hardly a time since God called Abraham. this was 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, to be the father of Israel. When the people of Israel have lived in peace with, and when the people of Israel have lived in peace with others, they, they lived in peace with themselves, but they couldn't live in peace with others. Even modern news sources say this, this is still the case. There were always boundaries between the people groups, and there were no crossing those boundaries if you wanted to live in peace. Here's a very brief history of the nation of Israel. Abraham, 2150 BC, and then they moved into slavery in Egypt, and then they escaped to the desert crossed the Red Sea, and wandered in the desert for 40 years. They finally crossed the River Jordan and entered the Levant, and they conquered the people there, the Canaanites, and they divided the land between the 12 tribes of Israel. But then they couldn't even live in peace with each other. They, they subdivided that, 10 northern t- tribes and two southern tribes. The northern tribes called themselves Israel, and the southern tribes called themselves Judah. But, and then they were, and even Judah and Israel were hostile with each other. And then the southern Judah tribe was invaded by Egypt, and the northern tribes were invaded by Assyria, and everyone was conquered, and they all got taken as captives to Babylon. Finally, they were allowed back into the Levant area, but only as servants and vassals. And then the Maccabean revolt took place, which took back the land and established another Jewish state. And then they were attacked by Rome, and they were taken over again. This history spanned 2,000 years, and then Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But in the middle of the history, Moses described what would happen when the Israelites crossed the Jordan. In Deuteronomy 7, it says... When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations, more numerous and mightier than you. And he goes on in verse two, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So it seems like God is saying, do not intermarry, do not have fellowship with your enemies, with outsiders, stay within your tribe and be shut off from people not like you. This was the Mosaic law and you were told not to break the law. A good Israelite would adhere to this. In our current times, we would have to ask, is this really what God wants? Last week, Pastor Stephen taught on the previous section of Ephesians where Paul wrote in verse four, 14, For he, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So this new teaching is saying the walls are broken down. There's one new man instead of two, and that they shall live in peace, and the peace is possible only by Christ on the cross. So sometimes you hear the statement that Jesus abolished the law, but other times you hear the statement that Jesus did not abolish a law, How do we reconcile this? Let's look in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, not until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Here's what I think is key to understanding this dilemma. Jesus does not say no part of the law will ever pass away. He says no part of it will pass away until it is fulfilled. He says he came to do this very thing, to fulfill it. So when, with his coming, the law has been fulfilled and has passed away. We now live under the law of Christ, not the law of Moses how did Jesus fulfill the law? The Old Testament law was not meant to be the means by which man could save himself. It was meant to be the means through which man was to be saved. The law needed to be fulfilled for salvation. But man was not capable of fulfilling the law, and Jesus was. So he filled the law in every way so that we, in believing in him, could have salvation. And to show that he fulfilled the law, he broke the law. I mean, just think about who Jesus hung out with, which was against the law. One thing Jesus did when ministering in Judah, well, think about some of his miracles. He adjusted the chemical makeup of water to create wine, multiplying food items to feed thousands, commanding molecules of water in a lake to become so solid that he could walk on them. These are miracles for sure, but to me, one of his most common tasks was to cross boundaries of culture, gender, and religion, and to hang out with people that he was told not to. Tax collectors, adulterers, lepers, paralytics, blind people, the Samaritan woman, prostitutes, many, many more. And whenever he would wade into these relationships, he was told by the Pharisees and Sadducees and even his very own disciples not to do it. But he continued to love and minister to those who were outside the limits of cultural acceptance and political correctness. In the eyes of the self-righteous priests, these dregs of society were off-limits. They were aliens to God's chosen people. The priests pointed to the physical infirmities such as blindness or disease as a sure sign that the person or their parents were sinners. And Jesus didn't stop drawing people in after his death and resurrection. He sought out and met Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Saul was rich, highly educated, and came from an elite family, He he was a Jew with Roman citizenship, which was a very coveted privilege, and he was also a persecutor of Christians. He was a political operative, persecuted Christians, and aggressively tracked them down to throw them in prison. Last time I got the opportunity to share with you, if you heard it, you might have remembered a little analogy I had to one of my favorite musicals, Les Mis. When I think of Saul of Tarsus, I think of the 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 police officer in Les Mis, his name was Javert. He just wanted to find Jean Valjean at any cost and throw him in prison. Now, you probably already know this, but while on his way to Damascus to arrest and extradite Christians back to Jerusalem, Saul was confronted by the very one whom he was persecuting, Jesus, the risen Christ. And what followed was one of the most dramatic conversions in church history. Saul of Tarsus became the Apostle Paul, whose scriptures we're studying today. He was an ardent missionary to an unbelieving world and a fine example of faithful service in the face of fierce persecution. Saul's education, his background as a Pharisee, his Roman citizenship, and his unflagging zeal all contributed to his success as a missionary once those credentials and trials had been subjugated over to Jesus Christ. But in this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, Saul was blinded by a light from heaven and he lost his sight. Now, this was done to show Paul how much he was to suffer for the cause. And right after this event came another example of God asking someone to cross over a boundary. He went to Ananias, a believing follower of Christ, and he asked Ananias to go out to Saul for the purpose of giving him back his sight. Ananias knew Saul's reputation of imprisoning Christians, and he was petrified. But in the book of Acts chapter 9, we read, the Lord talking to Ananias, and he said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, speaking of Saul. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So there's boundaries being crossed everywhere here, and not easily, and not without fear. Now, Finally, I get to turn to the scripture I was asked to preach on, (laughs) starting in Ephesians 2, verse 17. It says, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. We learned this last week in Ephesians 2, that Jesus is our peace. We also recall from the gospels of John and Mark that Jesus explicitly preached peace. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives to you, I give to you. Let let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And in Matthew 5, 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And throughout his ministry, he offered peace to the distant Gentiles and the nearby Jews. Jesus preached peace. And I know you're all familiar with the, the, the Israel, the Hebrew name for peace is shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word, but it not only means peace, it means harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility, and it's even used to say hello and goodbye. So it's got a much deeper meaning than what we think of with peace Shalom peace isn't necessarily the peace that comes to our minds, such as a peace treaty or the removal of military conflict. That's sometimes when I think of peace, that's what comes to my mind. Those are peace by subtraction, right? You remove the conflict, you subtract the violence. Shalom peace of Jesus is peace by addition. Things aren't just being removed from our lives to give us peace, but things are being added Shalom is not the absence of conflict, it's the presence of blessing. This peace not only puts you in a place of tranquility and safety, but also makes you whole and complete. If you experienced Jesus Shalom, what can you say was added to your life? More joy and happiness, contentment? If you have ever forgiven someone, did you receive more from that experience than the person you forgave? If you've ever volunteered for a cause and served a community, gone on a mission trip, did you ever come out of that experience with more tangible benefits than those you served? Or even more blessing than those you blessed? Opportunities to be blessed by blessing the Bradfords this week are a way that we can all be blessed and receive shalom peace. And Jesus peace, preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. Paul is specifically declaring the Gentile and the Jew were who the peace of Jesus were for. That's everybody, by the way. After all, Paul was calling directly, called by, directly by Jesus to preach to the Gentiles and Jews. And during this time, many Jews believed that they had exclusive access to God through the observance of their laws, through their ceremonies, and through their rabbis. And if you were not a Jew and you did not have this access, you were outside the chosen family of God. That's why it was shocking when Jesus went to hang out with the Samaritans and others. They were unclean and unchosen. But God sent Paul to the Jews and Gentiles to tell them that being in Christ meant being in God's family. To be far off meant to be far from Christ. To be near meant to be near in Christ. To be far off meant to be rebelling from God. To be near meant to be desiring God. This is hard teaching for the Jews, who for so long believed that their salvation came through their strict adherence to the rules. And now they're hearing that an unclean, non-Jew, uneducated rule ignorer can actually be in a better position to be saved than their modeled Pharisee. Verse 18 reads, For through him we both have access in the Spirit to the Father. Notice that there's three persons in this statement. There's him, that's Jesus. There's the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. And there's the Father God. The entire Trinity is in this one statement. Now, Jews and Gentiles, it now says, both have access to God through Jesus. And Paul, being a Jew actually wrote in Romans 1, 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This would have been considered heresy by his Jewish brothers. But thanks to the cross of Christ, all people have the same access to God. This message was to be spread to all the nations through the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Something already, this was already taking place when Paul was ministering in Ephesus. Verse 19 reads, so when you are no longer strangers and aliens, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, the Gentiles were the outsiders, and many of the Jewish people saw them with disdain, labeling labeling them as unclean and sinful people. They were defective. They had no connection to God, being spiritually dead, and not part of his chosen nation. They were treated as foreigners and aliens, harassed, not welcomed, looked down upon, not admired. But before we feel too badly for the Gentiles, know that they were not too nice to the Jewish people either. The Romans disliked the Jews and the Romans were Gentiles. The Roman historians described the Jews as hating everyone else. And this was in part because of their custom, which separated themselves from their neighbors. There were many lies and false beliefs about Jews. Therefore, there was a, there was a form of ethnic racism during this time of the early church. And it sounds to me like two feuding people unwilling to see each other's point of view, unwilling to engage in healthy dialogue, to understand the things they had in common instead of the things that separated them. But through salvation in Jesus, Gentiles were now citizens in God's family, along with every other believer. And upon salvation, the defects presumed by others were replaced by blessings. Anyone who is in Christ is a fellow citizen in the household of God. And being a citizen is huge. It comes with rights and benefits that non-citizens do not get to enjoy. Stepping into verse 20, it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the prophets were... They, they were in the Old Testament and they declared the holiness of God. They told others to repent of sin, to follow the laws and ordinances of Moses. They foretold the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, who would come one day to set God's people free. The Jews thought they would be come to set free from their captors. The Messiah was sent to set them free from sin. And The prophecies about Jesus... There's hundreds and hundreds of them and they were written hundreds and hundreds of years before his birth. But what's even more astounding than the prophecies was how how they were fulfilled. See if you can recognize some of them. In Micah 5.2, it says, the Christ will be born in Bethlehem. In Jeremiah 31, it says, the Lord declares, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Isaiah 8, It says, the Messiah would be a stone that causes people to stumble. And Psalm 69 says, Christ's thirst will be quenched with vinegar and gall. All of those were fulfilled in the New Testament and hundreds more. Well, that's the prophets. And now what about the apostles? The apostle means sent one, someone who was sent. An apostle is defined as just that, someone who was sent by Christ. Jesus who who knew Jesus, who walked with Jesus and went and planted churches now we view the twelve disciples as the first apostles, though there were others referred to in the New Testament in Romans sixteen Paul refers to Andronicus and Junia, which Bible scholars say were also apostles. there were strong opinions that um, they might there were strong opinions they were considered apostles, and some people even position that maybe there are apostles today. Well, we're going to talk more about apostles in Ephesians 4, but I consider the, the 12 apostles plus any those who lived with Jesus and were sent out to be the apostles. These apostles were sent by Jesus to plant churches, spread the gospel, and this base of prophets and apostles, while they were flawed to a man, this was God's plan for the foundation of the church. All the prophets and apostles were flawed. Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, and Paul. None of them were without sin or without flaw, but they were used mightily by God. Thankfully, God uses flawed people. I think we can all be thankful for that. There's a a song I really like by Casting Crowns called Nobody, and It talks about flawed and unimpressive people being being used by God. And one of the verses says, Moses had stage fright, which he did. He couldn't speak very well, which is why Aaron came along to speak for him. It says, David brought a rock to a sword fight. That's going to be interesting, but we know how that story ended. And then it says, you picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen, and you changed the world. He's talking about the 12 disciples who were so flawed. We often talk about the 12 disciples in our Bible study and we say they just don't get it. (laughs) You don't need to be elite to matter. You don't need to go it alone. We are just jars of clay. We're flawed, we're broken, but God still uses us. So this foundation of prophets and apostles, it says, but there was a cornerstone that everything was based on. This was the most important piece of the foundation this cornerstone was Jesus. When we consider the Jews and Gentiles as, a, as opposing forces, right? They, all, they disagreed, they battled, they set themselves apart. But I think of these two people, the, the Jews on one side as being sort of one wall in a building. They're, the Jews are that wall. And the Gentiles are a wall that's adjacent to it. Maybe the, Jews, the Gentiles are this wall. The Gentiles and the Jews, they only come together at that corner where the corner of the building meets. And at the corner of the building, directly underneath is the cornerstone of the building. That's, what, that's the only thing that can unite these people groups is the corner that is Jesus Christ. Verse 21 says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The holy temple of the Lord, that is the collection, assembly, and aggregation of all the fellow believers from every tribe and tongue, coming together in unity and peace to worship the risen King. Coming together to live in community, to practice the one another's as an act of worship. We love to talk about the one another's. There's so many of them in the New Testament. Here's just a few. Encourage one another. Carry one another's burdens pray for one another. Each person should use whatever gift he has received to serve one another. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds and love one another. We each serve as a part of the Holy Temple and that includes all other believers. We are to seek to live pure as a church body to be pleasing to God in worship. And finally, verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So not are you as the church being built up into a holy temple of the Lord, but personally and individually, you are being made into a dwelling place for God. Notice this, this work takes place by the Spirit. It says here, you are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We worship by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit, walked by the Spirit, taught by the Spirit, and we are washed, sanctified, and justified by the Spirit. Just as salvation is something owed purely by the grace of God, success in Christian life is owed entirely to the power of God through the Holy Spirit. God's the emphasis of the church, and that church, God's people, is made up of all the individual parts which work together to worship him. Regardless of background, Jew or Gentile, and regardless of past sins, God does forgive. He creates a new family among believers, joining us together both in his life and in eternity. So I just want to conclude with four points. Number one, gospel is for all people. If you're an outsider wanting to get in, you may have tried everything you can, tried to observe the rules, tried to serve and help the helpless, tried to read the Bible, pray regularly, and tithe. Well, here's the bad news. Nothing you've tried has worked. While you should be willing to quit sin and things that grieve the Spirit, you cannot clean yourself up enough to get in. Here's the good news. Jesus and his work on the cross can transform you from an outsider to an insider. Jesus lived a sinless life, fulfilled the law completely, and willingly went to die on a cross. He came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. Without knowing Jesus as Savior, you may continue to try to get in, but you won't find the peace of knowing where you will spend eternity. That won't come through your own works. That only comes through faith in him. And when Paul speaks of peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, he's not just speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles, but those in Jesus and those outside of Jesus. Those who are hunkering down in their sin and those that are turning from their sin and seeking him. It doesn't matter how far away you are from God, he is still calling you home. If you want to know more about what it means to know this peace, talk with me after service, or any of the people here, maybe someone brought you to Forest Hills today, or someone else. Talk to to us, and we would be honored to explore this question with you. Second point, Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. He's what all the prophecies of the Old Testament pointed to. Jesus is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than David. He fulfilled the law and the law needed to be fulfilled for salvation to come. And since man was incapable of fulfilling the law, Jesus did that. Point number three, people and cultural boundaries should be crossed over the, for the unity of the gospel. We should always be seeing others as image bearers of God because that's how he sees them. He loves them. We should too. This is what maturing in Christ looks like. Bearing each other's burdens... That is what family does. This is what maturing in Christ looks like. And this is what I see when I look out at you. I see family who care for each other, family who serve one another, family who puts other needs ahead of your own. Let's continue to ask, what is God calling us to grow into? And finally, you are a dwelling place for God. Not only are you Not only are you a family here, but this family is called the church and it's the holy temple of the Lord. And not only are you the holy temple of the Lord, but you are his dwelling place. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the spirit of truth into those who love him. And by that spirit, you are being built together into a dwelling place of God. Let's pray.